So here we are, the end of New Hollywood. And what can you say other than, wow, people like to make depressing movies in the 70s. Whether it's about adolescence in a dying backwater Texas town or the desperation of forgotten men in a Latin American jungle, this week is enough to make you want to slit your wrists. It's Peter Bogdanovich and The Last Picture Show versus William Friedkin and Sorcerer. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who bought a new cap this weekend and is thinking of maybe becoming a hat guy. Is that why you're wearing the hat right now? I, I you know, I felt like, because I, I sort of decided that this was the thing I was going to say this week, so it felt appropriate that I wore the hat while I said this. So what does it mean to become a hat guy, that this is just going to be Like, you thing? know, one of those guys who's just always got a hat on, but they've got, like, a supply of hats, so it's like they're oh, wearing, yeah. like, a different hat all the time, but there's always a hat, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so you know what I want to do is I want to go full Luke status from Gilmore Girls and just wear the one reversed baseball cap with a flannel shirt all the time and jeans while I'm running my kind of backcountry town cafe serving it to a town full of you know goofy and uh variety or varied types of individuals i'm austin hayden smith by the way philosopher actor writer producer etc etc and that is my fantasy is to also be a type of hat guy but in a different way yeah i feel like your hat guy and my hat guy were two different breeds of hat guy hey your hat guy's hip and cool my hat guy's kind of like i i just want to fish and you know every once in a while Maybe see, I'm urban hunt. hat guy. Yeah. You're like you're, you're like your country hat guy. Yeah, that's what I want to be, country hat guy. Yeah. Okay, so if you haven't been following, Austin and I each drafted three directors who had made prominent films during the New Hollywood movement, a period of American cinema that lasted roughly from around 1967 to 1980. Each round, we pitted two of those directors and one of their films against each other. First round was. George A. Romero and Night of the Living Dead against Mel Brooks and Blazing Saddles. Second round was Terrence Malick and Badlands versus Arthur Penn and Little Big Man. And finally this week, it's Peter Bogdanovich and The Last Picture Show versus William Friedkin and Sorcerer. So, the scoring system this time has been changed and simplified from previous versus series. It's been taken out of our hands, and at the end of each round, each of us has one minute to make our case for the film... Uh, for which film is superior. These summaries will be presented to an unbiased jury of our peers who will vote on whether me or Austin was successful in the round. The winner will be announced on ne- on next week's episode. Okay. So uh, we can hold our breath for that one. And uh, the punishment this time is the loser has to watch three movies made by YouTubers. <laughs> right, exactly. Which is going to be interesting. That episode's going to be kind of interesting because I feel like I feel like there's a lot to be discussed about uh, the recent YouTube phenom- the the YouTube phenomenon of the last like decade and how this factors into the way we consume media and why they therefore make terrible movies. Mm. Okay. Yeah. We'll see. I've actually never even watched a trailer. Or- oh, wait a second. Does Cobra Kai count? No, I don't think Cobra Kai does count. Fuck I'm you, thinking like movies that were made by actual YouTubers. So it's oh, like okay. things like the Smosh movie or like the terrible movies made by like Channel Awesome, like that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you're just not as down on your on your modern millennial culture as I am, Apparently, Austin. No, I'm not. <laughs> 
Um, so, so last week we did um, your well. Last round we did your movie first. So this week we're gonna do my movie first, and so we're gonna kick it off with Sorcerer. Yeah. In 1971, William Friedkin directed The French Connection. It received five Academy Awards, including Best Picture of the Year. In 1974, he directed The Exorcist. It made history. Since then, Friedkin has spent over two years in five countries on three continents, creating his latest film, an unusual adventure into the realm of suspense. Four men, condemned by their past, robbed of their future, trapped in a life that was also a death. Four men take an incredible chance, face an impossible challenge, and risk the only thing they have left to lose. The four protagonists being set up. Uh, Milo, the first part kicks off in Mexico where Milo, sorry, Nilo is a Mexican hitman who kills a man and disappears. Um, Kisen is a Palestinian militant who, after setting off an explosive in Jerusalem, flees the country when he is the only one of his organization not to be captured by the Israelis. Victor is a, Palest- is a Parisian banker who goes on the run when he is faced with a lengthy jail sentence for committing fraud. And finally, Jackie is a getaway driver who is involved with the heist of money from a mob stronghold. When the mob finds out who he is, he has to flee the country. All four men find themselves hiding out in the, the uh, backwater Latin American jungle town where the only source of income is working for an American oil drilling company. Trapped with no hope of making the airplane fare to fly somewhere else and start again, uh, they lead lives of slow decay and depression. However, an opportunity presents itself when a terrorist bombing causes the oil field to catch on fire and the company offers big money to four volunteers Uh, who are willing to drive a cargo of unstable nitroglycerin through a bumpy and unpredictable jungle to to stop the oil fire. Uh, The four men volunteer for the suicide mission, and what proceeds is a nerve-wracking trip over rickety suspension bridges through dense jungles filled with fallen trees, angry guerrilla fighters, and, of course, a journey into madness. Uh, this 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 film is interesting because it Conrad's basically Heart of Darkness is or well, it, it's essentially one of the texts that essentially is the last hurrah of New Hollywood. It's basically where uh, it's you know the the inmates started uh, eating each other and sort of like uh, burned down the building. This is, this is 1977, right? So this is 1977. So the significant thing about Sorcerer is, so this film cost like about 22 million, okay. uh, which skyrocketed from its original budget of 15 million. Um, Freakin fired half the crew. The <laughs> shooting days went on forever. I mean, basically, it's really, really interesting because this is essentially Freakin's apocalypse now, in the sense that 
Francis Ford Coppola went into the jungle and found madness. Friedkin kind of did the same here. But the interesting thing was that this film was such a huge disaster, which Apocalypse Now wasn't. Um, you know, uh, Wait, why was this film a disaster? Based... Just because the filming was difficult? Oh, it was or because a huge of its reception flop. was... Okay. It was a huge flop. It made $5 million. It was a complete and utter financial failure. Like, Apocalypse Now wasn't actually a financial failure. It was just... It just spent so much money. Um, it, uh, it, it wasn't particularly successful, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. So, kind of Sorcerer and Heaven's Gate are the two cases of where essentially these kind of new, young, hot directors were essentially just given a blank check, went off, made these insanely ambitious pra- uh, passion projects, and completely just bankrupted the, uh, the, the people financing them, um, and then came out and completely flopped. And, of course, the significant thing about Sorcerer is that it came out one month after a little movie called Star Wars. Oh, okay. um, Which is, of course, seen as the beginning of the modern blockbuster era. Now, and when sort Star of the Wars... high-concept four-quadrant movies. And the funny okay. thing is, essentially, the there was a contract which said that the studio got to do its premiere run of Sorcerer in Man's Chinese Theater, which for the month beforehand had basically been doing sold out shows for a month straight of star Wars sorcerer showed up in the cinema. Nobody fucking went to see it. It got taken out of man's. They put star Wars back in. It says it's like the most poetic. Um, it's the most poetic, uh, you know, uh, uh, metaphor for exactly what this film represents in terms of American filmmaking. Mm. So I, here's the weird thing. So when star Wars came out, how did it have so much hype behind it that it would that it would be a blockbuster? Whereas, because you know, it's not like uh, we have social media. It's not like it was a proven commodity. Um, it's not like George Lucas was some like superstar, I guess. Or I mean, I guess he was, and in, in some ways, right? Because he'd already done American Graffiti, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, you know, he was part of that whole kind of like film brats crew. He was like, he was in with Francis Ford Coppola, who was a big deal because of The Godfather. Francis Ford Coppola, of course, um, was uh, got American Graffiti made. So like, he was like George Lucas was in with all the cool kids in Hollywood. Okay, yeah. And American Graffiti was a big success. Right. Okay. So I guess that makes sense. I just kind of wonder why it would have had such a huge out of the gate box office run. Um, because usually it's people, like word of Star mouth, Wars, you know, but yeah, well also it was, it was that, but also like Star Wars, the whole point of it was, it was a film that everybody could go see. And so it's like what I said, when I talk about the four quadrant film, like it was for, like kids went to see it, adults went to see it, everybody went to see it. And you know, oh, I gotcha. the problem yeah. is that we genuinely forget that Star Wars was something that people hadn't seen a lot of in American cinema. It was essentially a big budget Saturday morning cartoon or like a, a, a kind of this, this sort of serial um, from the thirties, you know, brought to life. It's, you know, there's an element to which the film is playing on this nostalgia of people of Lucas's generation, mm. you know? So, but I don't want to talk about star Wars too much. I think star Wars is, I think star Wars completely destroying sorcerer at the box office is an interesting as i said metaphor for exactly what this film represents in american cinema however i do want to keep on sorcerer because there's a lot to fucking talk about in sorcerer sure um so austin so you'd never seen this movie before nope i had not 
Um, and how familiar with the works of Billy Friedkin are you? Um, so I've seen Bug, I've seen Killer Joe, I've seen Exorcist. So I've seen, I guess... You've seen The French Connection? Uh, yeah, I have seen The French Connection. Yeah. Um, but it was a long time ago, and I'm not sure I would say that I'm... Like, when people ask me, like, oh, do you like the works of William Friedkin? I, I mean, I, initially, for whatever reason, I think of Exorcist, and I think of, like, Killer Joe. And I don't know why, but maybe it's just because the ones I've... Ex- Exorcist I've seen, like, a dozen times, and Killer Joe I've seen recently, and that was, like, right when the reconnaissance was happening, right? Yeah. So, uh, for some reason, it has a certain cultural import attached to it. But, like, I don't really think of him as a filmmaker that I admire or that is, like, an amazing filmmaker for whatever reason. It's like, I don't think of The Exorcist as being attached to its director as much as maybe I should. And same with, mm. with Killer Joe. You know what I mean? Whereas last night when yeah. I was watching Sorcerer for the first time, I actually started thinking about how interesting the direction was. And then I started thinking about how interesting the exorcist is from uh, a director's from from a directing perspective and uh, and i love the exorcist i actually think the exorcist is a really really good movie um so i guess i feel like he's one of those people that i need to maybe kind of like reassess in my own assessment of the directorial landscape if that makes sense i mean he's a, he's the thing about freaking is he's kind of interesting because Friedkin is kind of one of these guys whose career has been always kind of marked by the fact he kind of he he kind of goes big and goes home uh, or goes home a lot of the time. It's like he, he swings for the fences and sometimes that doesn't really work out too well for him. But um, he's kind of like he's got this um, he's got this kind of fascination, I think, with the idea of trying to create a sort of visceral um, a visceral reaction in the audience. And I think one of the things that's very interesting that's really exemplified in Sorcerer is that he's very concerned with action over emotion. Mm. Like, the, there's not much melodrama in Sorcerer. Sorcerer is a film, and there's not a lot of... I mean, for a film that starts out with a prologue of the four characters, there's actually not a lot of backstory given to any of them. You don't ever know too much about any of them beyond action so mm. for instance you have the um the palestinian you know sort of a freedom fighter um or militant he what do you ever know about him beyond the fact that he committed this bombing and is on the run and is hiding nothing much because Friedkin's not really concerned with that he's concerned with the situation of desperate men and the actions that they will take in order to survive or find a way out of those circumstances yeah to me that and worked so, really well though because it was it was nice yeah. no 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 no, yeah. no I'm not saying it I'm not saying it as a as a negative I'm saying that it's I think it's actually interesting because I think it's something that you see within his career he's, he's very mm. concerned generally with the immediate within characters not sure. really with trying to create some kind of like over emotion or melodramatic story it's all about what's driving forward at all times on the screen in terms of what they're what they're dealing with right at that moment in time yeah and it's interesting too because um he's also very concerned with the morally gray universes so you know after sorcery goes on to make things like to live and die in la cruising you know films that are really really quite bleak Mm. and they're bleak in the sense that their characters have are you know 
live in a verily morally bankrupt world. Like, To Live and Die in L.A. is a film almost entirely where there's almost no good guy. It is a... It is a crime film where basically everyone is a criminal, mm. um, you know, and it's but it's also comes with a certain amount of slick artistry to it as well. Okay. And, I, and, and I think it's I think it's interesting because I think I think you can look at Sorcerer and you can see some really um, some some really heavy inspiration from uh, Italian neorealist cinema and especially from uh, Battle of Algiers. Interesting. I mean, I kind of. Yeah, I can definitely see the Italian neorealist, but thrown in the setting of a jungle in particular in this film, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it works really well because I wasn't saying that that you thought it was necessarily a criticism, but I think you were highlighting it, the idea that he's focused on action, especially in light of how most of the time we belabor the idea of the backstory, right? Like that's something Mm. that we're kind of taught and that we just were accustomed to seeing so much. And um, I think it's a crutch for a lot of writers as well. It's like it gives you some kind of significance because you 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 it's like it gives you like a sort of easy sign to say this character has some sort of emotional significance because here's um, here's some kind of emotional baggage. And, And I think the interesting thing is that all of these characters, you get a sense of their emotional baggage without really ever being told too much of what it is. They're all kind of remain enigmas beyond some kind of immediate cause and effect which forced them into this situation. Exactly, yeah. And that's why it's kind of a, a really sleek, stripped-down plot in that sense, you know? Um, I know this is based off of a novel. Did the sort of the four vignettes at the beginning, was that something, do you know, that the novel structured or is that Friedkin's choice it's I mean so this is so this is based off the novel Wages of Fear um, which was famously made into a French film in 1953 which is considered a sort of all-time masterpiece and classic so Friedkin's kind of taking on a a kind of sacred cow Mm -hmm. by remaking this and it's not really a remake of the film Wages of Fear so much as it's kind of a (laughs) reimagining of the novel and what Friedkin's actually doing is he's actually much more concerned with um, the basic bones of the idea and the concept. So a lot of the themes of the idea of this um, this remote town where essentially all of the people there are fairly hopeless. Um, in the novel, it's all it's four European men who kind of find themselves in this. Um, Sort of, it's it's always kind of ill-defined where the town is. Yeah, it's just some um, town in Latin America. <laughs> yeah, but that's. Well, I know Freakin was really heavily inspired by Ecuador. Like he went to Ecuador, and originally he wanted to shoot it in Ecuador. This film's actually filmed all over the place. Like uh, most of the jungle is filmed in the Dominican Republic. Um, the bridge sequence is filmed in Mexico. Uh, the part at the end where he gets to the desert and goes mad, that's filmed in New Mexico. Um, So, I mean, it's like it's... He's kind of... I mean, also, like, here's here's where some of, like, the craziness of this gets in. Okay, so the bridge sequence, it costs them a million to build that bridge because that bridge has, like, hydraulics in it. It has all sorts of... um, 
elements in it to make to, to for them to be able to film that sequence. So uh, they built it in in um, the Dominican Republic. Uh, at which point the river that they built it over immediately went dry because of a drought. So they then went to a river in Mexico. They had to uh, pack the whole thing down and rebuild it in Mexico, uh, at which point that river also promptly went dry. Oh so they then had to fake the water going through it. They all then also had to have create these... Uh, these pumps that would essentially feed into the water from the river and, uh, you know, work as sort of constant rain machines. And then that took about, uh, that whole sequence took, I think about two months to film, okay. which is a 12 minute sequence in the film. And it took about 12 months. It took about two months to film. Jesus. Yeah. So it is, and it is a absolutely, stunning set piece. I mean, the whole film it, is fucking stunning. And that seems to me as like almost the culmination, if you will, of, of the visual spectacles. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's what's interesting. Okay. So why I think I find sorcerer so fascinating is because sorcerer to me represents in a, in a perfect world where star, you know, or maybe not a perfect word, but an alternative world where star Wars didn't become the de facto idea of cinema. Mm. Um, because so much of like modern Hollywood cinema is based on the success of star Wars, like everything. So Avengers infinity war is coming out this Friday. That film is part of the legacy of star Wars. Say in a world where star Wars came out and everyone was like, what's this weird fucking space movie for kids. And it flops. Sorcerer, meanwhile, becomes this huge box office success, and people are like, you know what? We need to keep giving these crazy kids with ideas money, and just, uh, just write them blank checks and let them do whatever the fuck they want. I like that universe, like, by the I, way. Ideally, we would live in a world where, you know, rather than the idea of these large green screen CGI explosions and just this this complete lack of reality or texture in these sort of spectacle sequences you know you could look at the idea of sorcerer as um the ultimate the, that that bridge sequence is the ultimate inspiration for what the action sequence or or sorcerer as the idea of what an action film could be mm. because i mean essentially sorcerer is an action film with this weird kind of intelligence and interesting kind of themes sort of ticking underneath it because so much of it is about the spectacle and the tension and the excitement of like what's happening in it. But your brain, when you're watching that sequence on the bridge, you're aware there's a real truck that is driving over a real bridge and your right. brain is trying to figure out how the fuck did they do that without killing everyone? Right. Like, how is this happening? Whereas like, okay, the spectacle that I am going to see when I watch Avengers Age of Ultron, in theory, it's far bigger and more complicated than simply a truck driving over a bridge, but it's not relatable because I'm looking at it and ultimately I'm watching a cartoon. I'm watching the most sophisticated form of animation that we have right. um, rather than watching the idea of real humans performing something which is uh, extraordinary and crazy and dangerous but fascinating yeah and, and I and, and that 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 is what that's what sorcerer represents to me yeah and even when it doesn't work like uh, like you can see the stuntman take a dive or you can see 
body doubles or something like that. Even when it doesn't work perfectly, there's still something so much more admirable, in my opinion, about the the seeking of perfection in live performance. I actually just tweeted about this the other day. I was sitting at a bar with my buddy, and uh, he's he's a, a musician, and the bar that he works at, uh, the owner of the bar is, is a musician as well, and they were playing, like, um, vinyls, and we were talking about how you can hear the cracks and stuff like that, and I was like, I'm not trying to be, like, wanky and hipstery. I was like, but there really is something lovely about hearing, you know, analog music played back to you. And we started talking about why. And uh, the owner said something about, he's like, uh, he said, you know, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but it was totally like a, a throwaway comment about how you can see the imperfections or you can hear, I should say, the imperfections. And I started thinking about maybe that's why there is that like hipstery trend to go back to vinyl, right? It's like they're trying to seek the real in a world of digitized reproduction. And and I started thinking about film and why is it that I feel so disconnected from these big blockbuster films? And why is it that for me, the kind of film that I gravitate towards are the smaller films that are about like, you know, like Me Earl and the Dying Girl, where uh, it's just a story about some people and some shit they're going through and the camera work is simple and it's small scale. Like, why does that do it for me? Or why am I into like the Dogma 95 films? This film for me represents that same trend, and I think what it is is that even in the attempt, in in the, the striving for perfection through some sort of live performance or through uh, real practical effects or through uh, stunt work that, you know, doesn't always work well, but motherfuckers, they, they rehearsed it and they tried it and they had coordinators and they set this up. There's something about that that is just so quintessential of what it means to be human creating art that that I think that's why I'm able to kind of enjoy it so much even if I am sitting there saying okay these are actors how the fuck did they do this scene like even that for some reason it still adds to the overall enjoyment of of seeking the sublime whereas like these CGI films I'll still sit there and be like okay how did they do this where's the green screen where's the real truck where's the fake truck where's this you know where are they yeah my mind will still do that just because obviously I've been around on set and so I'm curious to the, like the, me the mechanisms if you will that go into actually making a film so I'm going to ask those questions but it doesn't have the same there's not the same touching towards the sublime that this kind of film has. And if I can give this film credit on anything more than anything, it is that it actually was far more... In a weird way, it was far more immersive than these films that are supposed to be immersive um, based on, like, digital technologies are. Does that make sense? What? Well, I, I think that's the interesting thing, right? Because the idea of a truck going over a rickety bridge in 1977, watching in 1977, aware of the realities and the logistics of it, is really engaging. However, the problem is now is that the perception is something like that isn't enough for an audience because all the audience right. is going to look at is they're going to look at the scenes. So, for instance... I watched, um, so um, it's not necessarily a fair comparison, but I, I watched, say, Jumanji, you know. The, the um, new one, right? The new one with the Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle with The Rock, the, that Jumanji. 
And, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm kind of like, okay, I bet they filmed in Hawaii. They had a nice, like, hotel room that they kind of, like, got driven to set in. And they was like, oh, here's a little spot with some trees and we can go stand <laughs> right. here. Um, and there's no and, – and then, you know, they go to the movie set bits and those feel like movie sets. And, um, and, and there's a lot of CGI and there's no real – gritter reality to any of it so in that type of movie a truck going over a rickety bridge would not be engaging because i would be looking at something that was shot on a green screen and i just don't care because there's no real there's no real uh there's there's no excitement at the grandeur of what's being done because while in theory they can make it as crazy as they want they can put him over like a hundred foot cliff rather than simply putting them over some water or and they can make the bridge even scarier and they can you know do all sorts of th- they could they could have like cgi birds attacking them or they could do all of that stuff but i just don't care because i'm not focused into the reality of what that is because it's so gone beyond the grasp of what my brain computes as something i can relate to on a personal level because when i'm watching sorcerer i'm thinking what the i would fucking die in that situation i'm right. i i wouldn't even get on the bridge with the tr- in the truck with the nitroglycerin <laughs> obviously because i'm not an insane person right. but i would definitely die there's no way i'm getting across that bridge if i'm put in that set of circumstances and um, that's what excites you is that connection to that reality and the interesting thing is okay so say we say we compare it to another franchise which is an action franchise which is famous historically for its stunt work the the james bond series okay there's always that element to which you see the seams. So Roger Moore, you cut to Roger Moore in the close-up, and he's on the, the rear screen projection, and he's kind of like, you know, kind of like wincing, like he's actually doing anything. But we all know he's not, because the stuntman <laughs> is fairly obvious, and Roger Moore doesn't really look like he can even really kind of run. He pretty much looks like, you know, he, 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 he a brisk walk is, like, is, is about as far as Roger Moore is going to, like, exert effort. But here... There's no rear screen projection. Um, there's minimal stuntmen. The actors are doing a lot of the driving. Um, and the location feels real. It mm. feels like you're in some kind of third world village. It feels like they literally arrived there, took the cameras out, and turned them on. It doesn't mm. feel like a, a designed location. And that's what I think is really interesting about what Freakin is doing with this film, is that everything is set to this sort of maximum point where you're supposed to buy into the gritty, harsh realism of what you're watching rather than feel you're in a movie world with movie characters. Yeah, and I think... I mean, it's even even down to little weird details, too. So, for instance, uh, one of the guys, when uh, Roy Scheider, who plays Jackie, is is, is driving the getaway car, uh, one of his companions is a guy who was actually in the IRA. Um, one of the other guys is a guy who actually pulled off a similar bank robbery. Clearly, Friedkin is very, very interested at the point with which reality meets film and the point to which you can enhance um, fiction with elements of documentary. Because also, too, there was a real bombing that occurred in Jerusalem while they were shooting there, and they went oh, and got shit. B-roll of like the reactions of the crowds just to that they could splice in with it just to create that more sort of like, again, this is why I say it's got some really interesting parallels with battle of Algiers. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, and I think that probably is what contributes to the, 
the immersion that I that I experienced when I was watching the film um, is that it does have that cinema verite touch to it in a way. I didn't know the bit about the IRA, but I did notice that he had an authentic Irish accent. And I remember thinking, I was like, oh, okay, so the dude's actually Irish. Okay, that's that's good because I like to hear that because bad Irish accents in films are ubiquitous. Um, bad accents in films are. And so I'm always sensitive to that sort of thing. So I did notice that. Um and I remember thinking, too, when the dudes first walk in through the church and they go in to knock off uh, the fathers in the back, I remember thinking there's a the camera lingers over these two dudes, one that's like kind of more tan looking and the other one uh, is uh, is not as tan looking. Um, he's the dude in the back seat that isn't the IRA, IRA guy. Um, and I remember thinking, I was like, those guys look like mobsters like they actually i remember thinking that i was like casting was perfect for them because they look like they belong in the east coast mob they just they just kind of fit you know i mean and, and then i was thinking like you know when you watch like seth myers or trevor noah and they do that thing where they'll be like they'll talk about like one of donald trump's guys they'll be like michael cohen or uh lawyer that you find in a gangster movie and they show a picture of him that makes yeah. him look like he's the lawyer in a gangster movie that's what i was thinking as i was watching these guys i was like oh like these are the guys that just by the look on their face they would be on like a seth meyers bit where it's like or a guy that looks like a gangster from a 1970s gangster film or something like that right like it was that type yeah. of uh that type of connection that was made in the casting that i think is really important all that stuff adds up right it's not just about hiring somebody because they've got a social media following or because they've got some sort of social capital that's going to put butts in seats the whole film is about putting pieces together in order to serve the entire purpose of, of a film that's effective but it's it's interesting because i kind of feel like at the end of the film i feel like its whole its whole thesis is basically the world is a meaningless and dark place filled with uh, horrible people and everything is hopeless. It's like it's it's like um, I, I I sort of almost felt like it like it would be like the favorite movie of the German nihilist from the Big Lebowski. Oh. You, know, I just, <laughs> you could it's almost like William Friedkin at the end is just going I believe in nothing. Yeah, except the dude dances at the end. Uh, so maybe it's like, I don't believe in anything, but, uh, you know. You... He dances right before he gets murdered yeah. by the mob who've tracked him all the way down to this Latin American jungle where his buddy, who he thought was protecting him, actually Rattled just put him, him there so he would be an easy target for the mob to hit. Yeah, maybe, uh, yeah. I mean, even like, it's, it's the detail of the fact, right? Of like, cause, cause I feel like Friedkin is just fucking with you, uh, you know, at, at certain points in this movie. Cause it's like, so, so they get over the rickety bridge. They do that incredibly complicated whole bit where they blow up the tree trunk with this elaborate MacGyver like, uh, you know, system to blow up the nitroglycerin and make a road through. And then is that the literally, bit with the sandbag? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And then literally when the French guy has his kind of one moment of kind of like, this was my watch my wife gave me. And, you know, and he's, it's kind of like, because he's like the only one who really has anything back home in theory that he has to live for. Right. Because nobody else has any real connection to anybody back home. Uh, they just slip on the road and the car blows up. And that's, uh, the truck just blows up like, <laughs> and it's like, it's so nothing. It's such a nothing moment. It's like, it's not some kind of like crazy um, set piece. It's just this sudden meaningless moment that where they, and, and, and they're just gone. You just kills off the two characters like that. Mm -hmm. And it's, 
And again, it's like it's freaking almost making the anti Hollywood movie. It's it's like it's nobody is redeemed. Nothing is nobody is a hero. Everything is shit. And uh, even your death will be meaningless. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And you're right. That bit at the end, you do think, oh, he's he's having this little dance. And then it shows the dude getting off the plane or whatever, walking in. And um, you don't actually see the death. Right. Unless I missed it. Um, but no, it's just, no, no, it's no. just it's implied sort of like cranes that, up. Yeah. yeah. And then it's kind of, you just well, see them walk into the bar and then the awesome tangerine dream score kicks in and you're kind of like, well, he's fucked. Yeah. What I, when it first hit, like when it first came in, I thought it was so interesting cause it's like the stranger things. What do you call it? Tangerine dream. It's that st- tangerine dream was the, the, it was a German band. They they basically are the originators of that kind of what became the sort of famous 80s synth score that 80s kind synth of thing. Score thing. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of like one of the originators of that. And they did uh, a bunch of sort of quite famous themes that you would think in that. Like they did, uh, they did this amazing one for the movie Thief directed by Michael Mann. And then they also probably one of their most famous ones is the theme for Risky Business. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to think for a second there. I mean, I love it. I think it's great. When it first hit, I kind of was like, whoa, this feels like I, this movie's in the 70s, and this is like an 80s soundtrack. And it jarred me for a second, but it actually really does work. But it's interesting, too, because freaking, because, again, I love reading about the making of this movie because it just seems like William Friedkin was just fueled on cocaine and ego and just was, like, <laughs> doing, like, crazy shit everywhere. But, like, basically what happened was... He caught this band in Germany and he was like, I love your shit. I want you to write a score for the movie. And they're like, and, and they were like, Sorcerer, was it like a sequel to The Exorcist? No, we don't want to do that. And uh, then William Friedkin, like when he actually said, no, it's, it's a remake of Wages of Fear. They're like, oh, okay, that's cool. Do you want to send us some some footage so we can get an idea? He's like, no, 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 no. I want you to just write the music. <laughs> and just like, I'm going to send you, the, I'm gonna send you the, the story outline and you just write what you feel. I love and it. I, see, I like that. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna score this. We're gonna edit the sequences to the, to the feeling of the music. I love that. See, for me, I love that kind of wanky artistry shit, man. That self-indulgent stuff. I love that. I was just talking with my buddy the other day about the movie Eyes Wide Shut, and we were chatting about, you know, how there's like all this controversy because. Kubrick kept him in the hotel for 400 days and it was like this crazy narcissistic project. I'm like, I dig that when artists go down that road, man. I want to see more of that. I want them to have the freedom to be able to do more of that. I don't think it's torture for actors. Actors, lighten the fuck up and just throw yourself well, into the project. It's good. I it's like It's interesting it. because I kind of feel I kind of feel like with The Revenant, they were kind of trying to build up this kind of mythology, right, right. this kind of 70s man director thing. And it was I remember somebody saying there's something very masculine about this idea of like we're gonna take a camera we're gonna go up that mountain and we're gonna we're gonna show you some things man yeah dude. some some stuff yeah you know? well so I've, and, interestingly uh, and a totally uh it's related but a totally different vein the film les miserables because i wouldn't think that like tom hooper is is that type of person but apparently the bits when um when jean valjean is at like the french monastery up in the mountains you know up at the very beginning of the film uh same sort of thing and apparently like hugh jackman recounts stories of him carrying a up the hill and you know being like just a dude with one of the crew you know suffering for his art to go up there and get the shots that they needed to get i love it dude yeah at the same time well i will say uh 
the word I've heard on the street is that Tom Hooper is a miserable person to work. I've heard that too. Yeah. uh, Yes. Yes. Um, so, uh, uh, then, you know, uh, it, it, with one would say arguably less interesting results than um, than what William Friedkin or Francis Ford <laughs> Coppola or any of these other directors gets. Um, but um, no, I, I think um, I think the thing with this, too, but it's, it's interesting, right, because in so many ways, we're actually talking about this in terms of the experience, because I think what I sort of put this into is what I often think of as. What, what I generally classify as this idea of pure cinema, like a film that has this kind of ride-like quality where it's all about the visuals are feeding into this feeling and this mood and you feel like you go through this experience with the film. Mm. Um, and it's not really about... And the, the reason I say this is because we're not really talking about the actors. We're not talking about, like, Roy Scheider and what his performance brings to it. We're talking about the film as a kind of visceral experience. Right. And I think there's something interesting about that because I think in many ways you could argue that that is the purest form of cinema, something which is this sort of visual auditory just kind of ride. Hmm. Um, And, you know, and I'm I'm not necessarily making an argument that that is exactly what cinema has to be or should be, but I think there's something in that because really when you're looking at Sorcerer, it's an example of something that can only be done with cinema. Mm. Like it is not a, it is, it is not a, it's like a novel will give you a very, very different experience. Now you can get very novelistic films where it's a lot about people kind of talking and it has a sort of voiceover to it. And it has an element to which it feels kind of like an adaptation of a novel. You can get something, you know, what like a, a still, a still photograph can be evocative in terms of its, you know, in terms of uh, what you're looking at visually, it creates a certain kind of reaction in you. Uh, music can offer certain kind of emotions. But what Sorcerer is doing is this kind of thing that is really only a reaction and a vibe and a mood you can get from cinema, from the visual art form. Mm. And I think that's what I think is kind of fascinating about it as a piece. And it's quite different from Wages of Fear. And almost everyone would argue that Wages of Fear is a better film than Sorcerer. And I'm not sure I'm... I think if I wanted to, I could sit down and I could try and make some sort of argument for why Sorcerer is better than Wages of Fear. But I'm not really going to try and do that right now. Um, I will say they're very, very different movies. Mm. Wages of Fear is a much more classical styled film, which is really based around sort of rationing up tension and having this kind of very emotional um the, the uh, have the film be about the kind of the how the characters relate to each other emotionally there's not a lot like again like sorcerer is kind of being the anti you know classical film in that way in the sense that again none of these characters ever really build any relationship to each other like they don't really come to like lovingly kind of like respect each other or anything like that. They, for the most part, stay exactly their relationships with each other pretty much stay exactly what they were until the, until the end of the film or Mm. until they die. Yeah. It's like they're, they're each self-interested. They're in a situation that's shitty. They need to do this so they can get some cash so that they can find some sort of way out of wherever they are. And so it is sort of a, a dog eat dog. These guys are thrown into a situation of desperation. It's a sort of Hobbesian thing, right? The state of nature. They go kind of to this wild place. They uh, don't really have the same rules and things like that, but they're thrown together under 
the 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 rule of the Leviathan, which is like uh, this this thing that's cohering them together for the purpose of a common goal. But yeah, but they don't really get into this weird like ah they become brothers through the struggle sort of story. It's much more about yeah. listen, we just got to fucking get through this. And and I think that's how it would be. Like yeah, you might. Yeah. Under certain circumstances, you could build a bond with somebody. But sometimes it's kind of like, hey, man, let's just get fucking through this, and then maybe afterwards we'll go have a beer and we can talk about our family or some shit like that. But well, we don't have time I for think that the shit right now. Well, I think the interesting thing is that that point where he has the conversation with the, the sort of the, the epilogue, where he's sitting in the bar and they have the he gets his sort of like fake passport and the money and so he has this opportunity to leave now and he's you know and and they they sort of offer him this other job um and it's like this kind of hopelessness of you realize that he realizes that he's gotten through all of this and yet still has nothing Mm. this money doesn't really mean a new life or anything really to him beyond the ability to get out of this one shitty town and into another. I mean, essentially, I mean, symbolically, all of these characters are in their own kind, are in purgatory. They're essentially, I mean, that's, that's what I think is kind of interesting because mm-hmm. I think there's, there's a kind of, um, you'll be better at this than I am because I, I, my, my understanding of these texts is only tangential, but there's an element of kind of, um, paradise lost and Dante's Inferno and the idea that these are characters who are essentially caught in this kind of unending purgatory in this, um, this, this isolated town that they have no ability to leave because they can't make the money to get out and they have to just keep working this, this, Hor- this horrible, dangerous job just so they can barely exist. And then the opportunity to get out presents itself, but only as this descent into hell where they have to pass through all these trials of uh, horrible endurance um, only to, with this idea of their final goal being this <laughs> essentially giant hellfire, um, which is kind of glimpsed and and keeps coming back as this visual theme of this inevitability of this thing that they're moving towards. And then ultimately at the end, you realize that all of it is nothing and it's fruitless and pointless and, you know, and, and, and you know, uh, serves no real redemption. Yeah, there's no way to purge yourself, actually. You know, the, the fire of purity don't actually have any effect on you because you're too far gone or something along those lines or because maybe that there is no such uh, there is no vision of the paradise on the other side of the fires but the fires is the sort of, the fire is the sort of end of it all yeah it is a, it is a bleak film I mean it is from that perspective a very bleak a, a bleak film but for some reason it still has uh, a level of enjoyment to it now I said before we started recording that I didn't fully think that it worked across the board but that doesn't mean that I didn't enjoy it I still like like if I watch one of these kind of more vacuous digital types of films where uh, the characters are shallow and um, uh, they're just kind of reproducing tropes to like you always talk about to give you the easter eggs to release those dopamine rushes Um, compared to that kind of film I mean this film is way more successful but I felt like the film thought it was something that it wasn't I felt like it thought it was like the apocalypse now or like it really you could feel like there's a little bit of a try hardness in it which again I respect what's interesting because it is is filled it's filled with these details and William Friedkin is really kind of like you feel at constantly like he is going for something 
The question is whether Friedkin has really ever totally decided what it is he's going for. Mm. Because it's like, it's like, so for instance, they rob the church, which is where the mob is counting their money. Right. And it takes this point to sort of zoom in on the bride's face and she's got a black eye. Right. And so it's this idea of, you know, within this kind of religious and um, traditional kind of uh, loving kind of ceremony. It's actually this dark undercurrent of you realize that this woman is marrying into abuse and a brutal system, uh, manipulation yeah. and brutality. And so essentially, you know, the, the, the choice to set it, uh, set one of the characters is coming from, you know, uh, Jerusalem and in, in terms of the, uh, the, the idea of the chaos that, 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 that the idea of one of the people is, comes from this background of like fraud and the idea of that, the manipulation of the banking system, the themes of the exploitation of the workers where you have this, uh, American company coming in and taking advantage of all of these poor, um, people and not giving a crap about like their safety or their health and the exploitation of that for meager income. I mean, it was like, um, you know, that song, uh, the, the company store, you know, you, you haul 16 tons. What do you get? You know, another day older and you're deeper in debt. Oh yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then yeah, even, it's, even, it's, even it's, in Latin America, you have those, um, the the little pictures that are on that are spray painted you know that are of like some sort of revolutionary ideals or something so you clearly even where they're thrown into is there's some sort of political tumult that they're thrown into this situation right so you've got like the israeli palestinian conflict you've got like the the uh, idea of white collar crime and fraud um you've got uh, like you were talking about with the business exploitation and then you've got like the underbelly the seedy underbelly of uh, of the kind of organized crime world, and then you throw them all into this situation in Latin America where there clearly is some sort of political revolution or uprising or something that's going on that's causing tension in, in that world too. So it's just tension rolled up with tension, rolled up with conflict, rolled up with conflict, kind of thrown together, um, and, and it kind of creates this... And I think maybe that's why it didn't work for me. I wondered if there was a sort of grander thing that was going on. And I don't mean that in the sense that, like, every story always has to have some sort of, like, social or political commentary. But I I wondered if there was a way to tie all of those themes together into something that wasn't just bleak nihilism. And maybe because it was just a nihilistic film, it would have been a disservice to try to have some sort of overarching, like, I don't know, socio-political statement that the film was was tapping into not even making in like a cheesy pedantic sense but just kind of tapping into and maybe it does uh in the sense of corruption and things like that but because it was so bleak and nihilistic i kind of it just seemed a little fragmented those those elements did and i think maybe that's why it didn't 100 percent work for me which i'm literally nitpicking now because i still thought it was highly enjoyable well, it's, it's, it's interesting, too, because, again, you know, when you're first introduced to Roy Scheider after he's after he's been clearly living in this um, this small uh, Latin American village for a while now, he's um, there's a bit where he's sitting at the bar and he's looking at this poster. And at first he's looking at like it's a, it's a woman kind of lying down with a Coke bottle. But mm. first we just see him looking at like the ass on the picture mm. and then. You, it, it cuts back to him looking, and then it cuts back, and he's looking at the Coke bottle. And so it's like this point where they're ta- where they're doing something about how he's obviously 
um, fetishizing the idea of, of, of a woman, but then also fetishizing the idea of the, the comfort of uh, American commercialism. Exactly. You know, and so yeah. it's like, and, and I mean, part of it, too, is he's lost his identity as an American. You know, he's posing as he's got this fake identity. He's posing as um, someone from uh, the country, but doesn't even speak Spanish. And it is this idea that all of these characters have kind of lost their identity. They've kind of lost their tangible connection anymore to the cultures or the backgrounds that they come from. And they have become essentially uh, faceless, um, nothing people who are just blend, are just trying to blend into this, this, this poor, um, unknown forgotten environment. Um, they, there's a, there's suppose, a recurring theme or they, they mentioned it a couple of times and I may have missed it, but where they talk about Managua, is that what it's called? So Managua. Yeah. yeah. There's, so at the beginning, the guy that gets the, the guy that's like the, um, assassin dude uh, from Mexico he gets off the plane and he says something that he's just stopping here so that he can go through to Managua and then at the end when they offer a chance for dude from Jaws to go somewhere uh, they say um, you know why don't you go to Managua and he says I can't go to Managua and it's almost like that that is the paradise that is the place beyond you know and mm. and they don't really they don't really linger over it they don't really explain it much but it came up, you know, a couple of times, and I was like, I wonder what this place is or what it symbolizes. But somehow it symbolizes at least getting out of this purgatory. Well, it's interesting. Have you ever heard of the book The Getaway uh, by Jim Thompson? No. It's this kind of pulpy crime novel from, like, the 50s. Um, it's been adapted into a movie twice, once with Steve McQueen and Ali McGraw. Yeah, I know the, I know the McQueen. And Kim Basinger. Yeah, I know the McQueen uh, film. Uh, yeah. Um, and both films miss out the last chapter. And the last chapter is kind of really famous because the whole point is throughout the book is they're trying to get to this place in Mexico called El Rey. And the idea is like El Rey is this place run by criminals. It's kind of like this criminal stronghold where like that's that's where you it's where you get away with your ill-gotten gains and you can live like a king or whatever. Ah, yes. But the interesting thing about it is like the the book has this final chapter which explains El Rey. So the idea is they've gotten to El Rey and it just explains what El Rey is, which is essentially it's a place where you spend all your money and then you become destitute, and then you become food for everyone who lives there. And it's like, you know, and it's basically people just, it's basically the idea is the criminals just feed off of each other. Mm. And it's, uh, and, and it's essentially hell. That's the idea right. is that, is that they go through all of this to essentially go to hell. It's a, it's a very, mm. uh, it's, it's, it's a very bleak kind of nihilistic ending. But it's interesting because I actually thought it's almost like someone's taken that and made that the premise of the movie, that they essentially get away from the criminal activity that they did, or mm. you know, but they end up in hell. And that's, that's essentially what th this is always read to me as, is that mm. this is a sort of why this is a sort of metaphor for the purgatories we create for ourselves by the terrible acts that we do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so I, I, I have two quick things to add. one. I, I'm curious, what do you think of the performances? Yeah, they're good. I had no complaints. You know, I mean, is it because, cause they're, they're very physical performances. They're not really about the actors. It's, it, it just causes the actors just have to commit to 
you know, the, the throwing their body into the situation. The right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is interesting because it means that it's not really about because it's interesting because like Friedkin said he got like none of his first choices in any of the films like in any of the roles like uh, everybody was like his fifth or sixth choice um, because like it was very hard to convince anyone hey do you want to come down hang out in the Dominican Republic uh, like while we shoot like these really uh, like intense like driving scenes and you know it's, it's it was like I, I think because uh, he tried to get Robert Mitchum for the Roy Scheider part and apparently Roy, Robert Mitchum said why would I want to go all the way to the Dominican Republic to just fall out of a truck I could do that at home yeah yeah actors are pussies man Jesus that I, always makes me angry and can we also stuff like that <laughs> and can, can we also agree that this movie has a fucking terrible title yeah, I don't understand the title. The title is very simply that one of the trucks is called Sorcerer. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the entire reason it's called that. But do you want to know what its original title was? What? Ball Breaker. Gee, that's even worse. Jesus freaking. <laughs> exactly. Come on, man. <laughs> Call it like, See, I don't know, Chaos in the Jungle, and that even that's better. Like, Jesus, man. Well, yeah, so... The, or the, Wages the reason, of Fear. Call it Wages of Fear. Or Wages of Fear. I mean, the reason that the, the title that I didn't... That I don't get why they chose that title is because it seems... It seems, again, like Friedkin was trying to be too smart, right? Like, ah, I'm going to call it Sorcerer because the name of this truck and their livelihood is in this truck. And a sorcerer is someone who has magic powers. And this truck has magic powers and holds their life in their hands? No, it's it's, it's got something to do with the idea that Sorcerer is uh, an evil being that, you know, uh, with black magic. I can't remember. I've heard Friedkin explain why he called it Sorcerer. Um, I've... I, I don't really get it. I um, wonder if it actually I think actually it's one like of the things probably hurt at the box the office. Yeah. Because this was his film he made right after The Exorcist. Right. So I think people were expecting a very, very different film when they went to see a movie called Sorcerer. Especially when you look at the poster and you see that truck with the kind of almost like evil face that's yes. been production designed Right, you think it? there's going to be like some black magic going on or something. Like I was wondering. I, thought, I for years I thought, genuinely thought. I, thought, I, I yeah. would see Sorcerer on his filmography and be like, I don't really want to watch that because I don't like movies about like magic right. and shit like that. And so and so it took me years to watch Sorcerer for that reason. I even remember people describing it to me and going like, why the fuck is that movie called Sorcerer? Yeah, I thought they were going to like go down into like the Latin American jungle and they were going to find some sort of, you know, tribal ritual peoples that worship black magic or something like that. There would be some sort of direct connection between the title and the plot. And it's really you, not. It's a sideswipe. <laughs> did you go into this movie completely cold? Did you really know what it was about? Uh, uh, the only thing I knew was what you told me about it. That was it. Because I, I remember I knew all I – because I remember too, like, because for years I thought it, it sounded really I, – I, everything about it implied it was really wanky and stupid. And then so it took years for me to hear – it's about people transporting nitroglycerate in a truck. And I'm like, well, fuck yeah, I want to watch that. Oh, yeah, see, you that's know? what you it's told like, me. That's how, that's how I went into it, was just thinking that it was about these dudes transporting nitroglycerin through the jungle. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, that doesn't sound bad. So for me, that, yeah. was, that was all I knew. I, yeah, yeah, that was it. But I, 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 think, I think the thing, to sum this up, I think, I think this film is the quintessential, um, yeah, and I, there's another podcast that, that, that talks about this, so I don't want to be like sound like I'm just ripping them off, but this is the quintessential blank check movie. This is essentially where director is so at the height of their power and their influence 
that they just go off the rails on some passion project mm. where they essentially nobody can say no to them and anyone who tries to gets in their way they can just fire mm. and like and they could drive people to the brink of insanity just to do what they they need and it's like it's like it's even things like like something like like Friedkin got like fucking like pneumonia on this film and didn't fucking realize it until like after like a- after they'd finished rap after they'd rapped on it mm. like um like like something like twenty crew crew members got gangrene during the making of this movie. Right. It's like it's like the stories of the making of this movie are fucking insane. But mm. it's like it's like that thing where I look at it and I'm just like. You know, as much as I'm sure there are people who despise having worked on this movie and hate William Friedkin or whatever, I'm just like fascinated by this insane piece of art that we got off the back of that. Mm. Yeah, I know. I, I kind of again, I'm, I'm like, I would, I would take, I, I wish we did live in that alternative world where summer blockbusters were. Things like Sorcerer and Apocalypse Now and um, Heaven's Gate, you know, these things mm. that crazy were crazy sort of over budgeted flops that kind of um, that kind of sank New Hollywood. And we ended up with Jaws and um, Star Wars uh, being like the de facto things that ended up sort of. And don't get me wrong. I love Indiana Jones. Things like Indiana Jones are what came off the back of of, of that of of that but you know at the same time you're kind of like i wish there was a world where people would bankroll crazy artists who want to do crazy shit i 100 percent agree tony bennett's cold cold heart was on everybody's hit parade elizabeth taylor was getting married boys wore duck tails the police action in the far east was korea and anarene texas like other small towns is approaching the end of an era I heard about the ball game last night. 121 to 14. Must be pretty near record. What do you think he'd do if he found us? Shoot us, probably. But, Mama, it's a sin, isn't it? Unless you're married, you know I wouldn't do that. <sighs> Don't be so mealy-mouthed. Come it out! Come it out! You've got to be men like the rest of them. Ain't none of you pretty enough to be women. You boys can get on out of here. I don't want to have no more to do with you. I've been around that trashy behavior all my life. I'm getting tired of putting up with it. You wouldn't believe how this country's changed. I reckon the reason why I always drag you out here is probably I'm just as sentimental as the next fella when it comes to old times. Old times. Anarene, Texas, 1951. Nothing much has changed. So for the other film uh, in our final verses episode uh, in the new Hollywood saga is The Last Picture Show directed by Peter Bogdanovich and starring Ellen Burstyn, Cloris Leachman, Ben Johnson, Jeff Bridges, and Timothy Bottoms, um, who... Uh, so you forgot Sybil Shepard. What's up? You forgot Sybil Shepard. Oh, uh, no, no. Yeah, and Sybil Shepard. Uh, and this was kind of the film, and Randy Quaid is in it, right? 
Um, <laughs> Randy Quaid, yes. And uh, and this is the film that kind of launched um, Jeff Bridges, Timothy Bottoms, but in particular Jeff Bridges and then Sybil Shepherd's career. Um, they this was kind of like their first their first gig, right? Um, or at least their first big gigs that uh, that put them. Yeah, in they the, were all kind of. Life. I mean, like like Jeff Bridges was obviously the fa- the son of Lloyd Bridges, mm-hmm. so he was kind of like a Hollywood kid. But yeah, like this was kind of their. The, the beginnings this this was what kind of got them noticed as as the next sort of like generation of of actors yeah yeah and you can see why um it's a film about small town anarene texas uh the film is made in 71 but it's set in the early 50s so like 1951 and i actually the tagline from the poster just kind of sums it up perfectly nothing much has changed and so it is small town, I mean, small town Texas, where they have their football team, they got their basketball team, um, the adults are all kind of fucking miserable, they are nostalgic about last loves, the teens are on the cusp of coming into adulthood, but they're still bright-eyed about the fantasy of what it means to be getting married and getting a job and becoming adult, and... It's sort of about the conflict of those two fantasies or those two visions of the world as they meet in the middle, so to speak. Um, this film um, has received a lot of like historical attention. It was deemed culturally and historically and aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress um, and selected for uh, preservation by the National Film Registry. It's a film that's gotten a lot of attention. But um, a lot of times films that get a lot of attention can be a little bit wanky or they can be a little bit, um, I don't know, it seems like there is this bit of a try-hardness. Whereas this film, I think the thing that is so interesting about this film is that it is just simply stripped down and simple. And it's a story about people and them dealing with growing up or uh, them living in the sort of more twilight of their years and being nostalgic about the times when they were growing up, when they were optimistic and hopeful. It's about a town where nothing changes. It's about a town that's kind of forgotten, a town that doesn't that doesn't have anything to do. The only thing that people have to do in this town is go to the picture show, uh, hence the title, The Last Picture Show, which, of course, at the end, even that gets taken away. So it really is a derelict setting, and it's a film about what happens when humans are thrown into this kind of setting, when all you have to look forward to is getting married or dating the next teen cute boy or trying to get a little bit of pleasure by having an affair with a high school boy or trying to find touch or love that you haven't had in a long time or trying to find some sort of stimulation to wake you from your um, boring, repetitive existence what what kind of uh, yields from that. So that's really what this film kind of uh, takes place in. And I know, again, it sounds dire and it sounds bleak. And it kind of is, man. After I watched it this time, I kind of just sat there and I felt almost like I was in a meditative state, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's really interesting because this film is... Again, I feel like this film is so much about mood. It's just like it's it's really about this just this vibe of what you, of of what this place feels like. And again, I think I think it's really interesting because um, I found it odd because when I looked at when because I rented it off of iTunes, um, and when I looked at the synopsis of what it said, it said owes a lot of lot to the works of John um, Ford and um, 
and Howard Hawks, and I just found that peculiar because I don't see how this owes to the work of this is not in any way a, a, a John Ford or a Howard Hawks style film. This is just purely because it's set in Texas doesn't makes no sense. I mean, to me, this film is deeply indebted to you know this is this is this is. This is my rallying cry of this entire Versus series, but uh, owes a lot to the works of the Italian neorealist movement and the French New Wave. And you can feel it in the sense that it's this kind of fascinating, almost European-style film about small-town Texas. So it's Mm. kind of treating small-town Texas in the same way that, like, Pasolini uh, looks at the, uh, you know, treats some... you know, that treats treats uh, the the uh, the people Jesus goes to visit in um, in Gospel uh, according to Saint Matthew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's all about this kind of this sort of realist vibe of kind of um, real small town Texas people, and of course, uh, the funny thing is like you know, Sybil, neither Sybil Shepherd or Jeff Bridges are like Texans. Um, you know, a lot of like there's a lot of people in this film who aren't Texans, but you feel like a lot of the the, a lot of the small people feel very, very authentic. Like, I think about that um, anytime you're dealing with the people in the small town, you know, and they're talking about, like, like um, you know, how they, you know, they need to learn to tackle and or, uh, you know, they, they have this very kind of matter-of-fact, no-nonsense, very detached way of speaking. It all feels very, very authentic, which is interesting, too, because Bogdanovich is not in any way from that background either. Uh I mean, it's co-written by Larry McMurtry, who is a, a real Texan. Um, but it's it's a really, really fascinating how much this film, to me, strives to be about a sort of realist idea of this dying way of life hmm. rather than being some kind of Hollywood version of it. Which, again, I'm just like, I'm, I'm so struck by how shallow and really stupid that iTunes synopsis is to think that this is modeled on the works of John Ford. Yeah, if someone saw that, I feel like it would be a real. Uh, it would all, for, first of all for me, it would almost be a turnoff. Like I, I'm not sure that I would want to see a film made in the '70s that's like inspired by the works of John Ford, but that's not like a western or something like that. You know, like I, I don't really know what that means. I mean, maybe maybe because they sit in the movie theater and they watch westerns. That's the only well, but that's, nod. That's, to me, that's the whole point as well. Is you are looking at okay. So the two movies you see um, that they show in the theater are the first one is um, Father of the Bride, the original one starring Elizabeth Taylor and Spencer Tracy, um, and then the second one is Red River, directed by Howard Hawks. And the point of those, those are two very very specific choices Bogdanovich has made there. One is. Uh, about the juxtaposition of the sort of Hollywood idealist life of the sort of like uh, of this kind of loving father-daughter relationship, whereas the kids watching it are like like Timothy Bottoms. They say he doesn't get on with his father. You know, he lives in like a flop house. You know, and he's very much just like killing time in this town with no real direction or idea what he's going to do. Jeff Bridges is the same. Like his mother, like he doesn't have much of a relationship with her mother. Like live in some poor, shitty little rundown house. Um, and you know, he's he's bound for the army that's his inevitability they're mm-hmm. all going to go work on oil fields There's civil no shepherd her, any her parents are in a weird you know they're, they're separated and the mom is like just a, a local algae she's a little bit different though because she's from money so there's this idea that she's they're going to buy her out of the town because they don't want her to stay there they want to send her to wichita falls mm-hmm. which is, you know it's, yeah. it's like the fancy bit you know um and but like 
the whole idea is Bogdanovich is, is really juxtaposing this idea of the sort of idyllic American family with this harsh reality. And then, of course, the other thing he's doing is he's juxtaposing it with the romantic idea of Texas and the West. So you have John Wayne saying, mm-hmm. take them to Missouri, Matt. It's like, then it's like, and they're all going, yeehaw, and they're going to yeah. go on a cattle drive, and it's going to be like this big thing. Whereas, like, and that's the romantic idea of the West and what Bogdanovich is, and that is the last film they watch before the theater closed down in this dying town with no opportunity mm-hmm. and nothing left and this is what the reality of the West is. So again, I'm so fucking irritated that iTunes doesn't fucking get this movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you should write them and give a, give your own synopsis. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it does seem to be something very different. I mean, maybe you could say that it's inspired by the works of John Ford in that it's taking that vision and then having like it like making a more contemporary commentary um maybe in that way but but no it doesn't seem like uh that in that type of vein it seems much more in um kind of a contemplative um it is a more european dire hopeless type of film rather than the typical american optimistic type of film well, and actually, I'm going to take back what I said, because I said it's interesting that Bogdanovich isn't from Texas. And I actually think that's the point, because I think because we, we've talked about this before, but I think there's an important element that gets lost a lot in this obsession with authenticity in this day and age with the idea of the outside perspective, the outsider who comes in and sees the exoticism mm. within the mundane. And I think that's actually what part of this is, is you have Larry McMurtry, who is very much from this kind of background, this kind of more authentic sort of Texan experience. But Bogdanovich, who's the outsider, is coming in and he can see what's strange and exotic and Mm. weird about this world. And that's what's really interesting. By the way, I've also read the book, The Last Picture Show. Um, And uh, the film's very, very faithful to the book. Is it? Um, Okay. But I will say the thing that you miss from the film from the book is the film gets much more into the sort of inner monologues of the characters and in the sense that it very much tells you what they're thinking at any given point and it fleshes out a lot of the day-to-day interactions so and there's also some there's also a lot of weird details that aren't in the film like so so because it gets a lot into the interpersonal dynamics and the sort of um the relationships within the town and one of the things that's really really peculiar and this is the sort of thing that could only come from somebody who did definitely live in this world is, um, you know, there's a bit where they sort of say, well, maybe there's a calf we can go fuck. There's literally a bit in the book where the guys get together and each <laughs> gang bang a calf. Like, <laughs> so that is, the, so, and, and that, so that's the weirdness of what you get in the last Well, And it's a show, semi-autobiography. Um, the, the so book. I wonder if that really happened. But it's like, well, I feel like, I feel like it has to have happened. Because that's really the only thing you write about unless it's happened to Come you. Come on, man. But, no, I think there is this... You know, I, the, the moment I always find so fascinating in it is that moment when he's at the football field and the guy says, um, and the guy says to him, oh, they've, they've got a great team now, not like back in your day. When was it you graduated? And he goes, last year. And he's like, oh, it seems ages ago. And it's, it's interesting because I think it does say something about how it's almost like with a lot of these guys, high school is almost like this thing they're killing time doing. Like this adolescence is kind of something that they 
kill time doing and then it's this kind of like they're soon into the stark reality of got to go out to the oil fields you got to join the army because that's Mm. that's it and so when he talks about nothing's been the same since sam the lion died there's like this idea that with sam they're the this the sort of father figure that's when that's when that's how that's when his childhood dies and that's when the true Mm. reality of this no hope town dies with it yeah there's something interesting about time in those mm-hmm. those ideas too that that time almost doesn't take hold or it doesn't have the same kind of meaning or time is oftentimes viewed in a hopeful terms that oh i've got time to develop or i have time to aspire towards this goal or uh, that time is this optimistic thing that we can harness for our own benefit and in this town it doesn't matter. Time doesn't really exist. Um, once you become an adult, you're kind of in this perpetual state of just now, of of like a bleak repetition of day after day, of monotony. And that's something that Sybil Shepherd's mom actually says, right? That Ellen Burstyn says at one point. Um, when Sybil Shepherd is like so eager to marry Dwayne. And, you know, they're seniors in fucking high school, man. And she's like so eager and the yeah. mom is kind of... You know, and then Civil Shepherd's like, but, you know, and like, isn't it, isn't it a sin to have sex and all this stuff? And the mom is like, oh, girl, it's like she's just fed up with, like, the naivete. It's like, trust me, you're going to get over all of these romantic ideas about what marriage is and what sex is. And she's like, if you want to rush into monotony real quick, marry Dwayne, you know? And this is the mom who, you know, she just, she is at that point where she's not trying to please God anymore. She's not trying to please the authorities anymore. She's not trying to please anybody because she just kind of realizes the the bullshit fabrication of these fantasies that you will eventually grow out of and and in a weird way she almost pushes Sybil Shepherd into kind of doing these things like getting naked at the pool party and losing her virginity quickly and um, just kind of becoming more impulsive and um, there's a sense in which that she she like you said earlier she is the different one uh, even though she has still a sort of non-ideal family life she is different because she at least has the opportunities to actually get out right there's that bit at the end when she's down in dallas and she's in school and um both uh timothy bottoms and jeff bridges are kind of talking about whether or not they're gonna or whether or not anyone like talk to jc or anything like that and they're like no there's probably a lot to do down in dallas right that with you, mm-hmm. you can do stuff you can Time means something differently in a place where there's actually something to do, where there's potential for improvement and development as a person, you know? Like, you imagine that she'll go off down even though she... Did they actually get married or were they about to get married? Well, he says that they got married, but I almost feel like it's this weird thing where almost like it's not treated seriously like they did. It's just kind of ignored by the adults. They're kind of like... It is. The dad literally it, it pulls almost, her away. I was thinking, I'd be like, dude, I'd be like, motherfucker, that's my wife. Get your fucking hands off of her. But the dad is like, you're coming with me and you can walk home. And like, they don't communicate anymore. They just got fucking married. Like, it was really... And of course, you know, it was a stupid reason that they got married. They got married for... Out of boredom, I guess. Um, but... Uh, it's kind of silly. I was like, weird. So they actually did get married, and then they just never see each other ever again. <laughs> well, they went to Oklahoma to get married, which is just, it, it just seems weird. I mean, it must have been some sort of, uh, like, um, legislative 
thing, you know, some sort of regulation yeah. thing. Like you couldn't get married in Texas, but like across the wild state line of Oklahoma, anything goes or something. I mean, I don't know. It might just have to do with like what the regulations are in terms of like age, in terms of like how your parents, um, like uh, whether your parents have to be, have to consent, things like that. Yeah, but I, if I you're know. 18. And they were seniors, I, mean, I would imagine. And and here's my thing. Did did she intentionally leave that note to sabotage the wedding? She did. You do yeah, think that's so? That's the whole okay. thing. Yeah, no, totally. Because she wants to basically but that she does it for attention because that's what she she's basically it's like how that thing about how the entire reason she's even like interested in Timothy Bottoms is because she heard he was banging Cloris Leachman and is then she kind wasn't of like, the object of desire. Me. Yeah. So it's like yeah. she has to prove something by by proving that she can get him. Yeah. She's not interested in him. She just needs to prove she can. So this brings me to a very interesting point, And mm. I'm curious to hear your reaction to this. Do you think Sybil Shepherd is good in this movie. Okay, so this is what's interesting. Uh, so if I was going to criticize this film for anything, it would be that there were a couple of bits in the acting that made me kind of go, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, I do think, I actually think all the adults across the board are great. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially um, Sam. I mean, he's fucking that scene when he's at the watering yeah, that, hole. The Ben, the ben Jones oh. where he's like by that. He's talking about like uh, he's talking about um, with, like going swim with, with the Ellen woman Burstyn, and yeah, who you find out yeah. is Ellen Burstyn. Oh my god, That's, that scene! Well, because it's also it's it's so restrained as well because it's just this simple little track in, and then it, and as he's sort of talking, and then it just tracks out again, and it's so kind of like it just kind of just lets him do his thing and he doesn't he doesn't move he's just looking it's like he's got one yeah. fixed point his his line of sight is fixed and he's just talking but he's really envisioning these fantastic moments that he had with this this love that he once had in the past and when you know he won oh. he won uh, best supporting actor fucking a um, he did he better have yeah. apparently the anecdote was that he didn't want to do the film and then peter bogdanovich said if you do this part you're going to win an academy award and then he finally caved in and he did end up winning an academy award well because also cloris leachman also got best supporting actress right. for um her which is is so funny too because cloris leachman basically all through like my childhood my teenage years just played like crazy out there older lady Old women, like yeah. she was she was always like crazy comedic older lady. And so it was like, I didn't even like think of her as like a serious actress. Or as like a sexual object. And it was really, yeah. it was kind of nice. Like I, I, I thought there's that bit at the end where she says, you know, uh, when she's talking to me, Bottoms comes back and she says something like, you know, because I'm ugly or whatever. The thing is, she's actually a very pretty older woman, you know, compared yeah. to Timothy Bottoms, who's a fucking teenager. It's just that she's not, she doesn't have the youthfulness of the, the Sybil Shepherd character, or JC, who is like, held up as the, the pinnacle of beauty in this town. Um, but, yeah, so Sybil Shepherd, she... There would be a couple of moments when I thought... And I remember I asked myself, I was like, is that because she just wasn't quite in it there? And it's more particularly the scene when she tries to have sex with Dwayne and it doesn't work. Like, he can't get it up for whatever reason. And she's like, oh, I hate you, you know? And it just seemed a little kind of, a little over the top and cheesy. But then again, at the same time, 
it kind of also worked. And I wondered if part of the reason that it felt that way was because of the way that it was cut, because sometimes that can happen too. So I, I don't know. I mean, I still across the board, I liked her. I thought she was she worked well. Well, it's interesting, too, because uh, the story, as I understand it, is that essentially she was cast off of, like, uh, a magazine cover. Because, basically, Peter Bogdanovich's wife, infamously, because uh, Peter Bogdanovich went on to have an affair with Sybil Shepard during the making of the film and uh, later married him. Um, She basically saw her on this cover and said, "Um, this is totally the girl. Just because, like, she's got, like, the look and the vibe, um, and she just exudes, um, she, she just exudes uh, JC as a, you know, just... Like an innocent, you know, sexy beauty, um, but that there's still, like, a striving for something more underneath. And then Sybil Shepard is also kind of infamous for being fairly difficult as well, so... It's so it's, weird for me. Sybil Shepard, to me, was... What was the, was the name of her TV so show? Sybil Moonlighting. Oh, was it Moonlight? Was it was it, didn't she have her own TV show? Uh, she might have had her own TV show as well. But famously, her famous TV show she had was Moonlighting with Bruce Willis. Yeah, and I was just way. I mean, I actually watched Moonlighting, but I was like literally like seven or five. So I remember it she because my parents She might have also had it. a TV show that was like called Sybil or something like that yeah, as well. I thought so. Yeah. But so I... Yeah, she did. She had a show from 95 to 98 called okay. Sybil. So for, in my mind, she was always like a middle-aged woman, right? Yeah. Because when you're 10 years old uh, and you see, even if she's in her 30s, she's still like old, right? Um, yeah. So when you're like 7 to 12 or whatever it was when that show was on... Um, she was always kind of older. So it was interesting for me to kind of go back and see her as being the, um, the object of desire, like the pinnacle of beauty. And she is, she's absolutely stunning. You know, she is, she's absolutely gorgeous. Um, but, uh, it was just interesting. It was kind of a, I don't know, a strange experience for me to see her in that light. And, and I didn't think she was perfect, but I thought she was good. See, it's interesting because I don't necessarily, I think all of I think I think it's interesting because I I think none of all of the young actors are very much um, they are they're always kind of coming up against these the, the sort of tragedy of the last picture show is that you have all of these characters who have this kind of wisdom and understanding of the world and this kind of pragmatic mm. somewhat cynical idea of how it is. And the younger, innocent ones are too stupid to ever listen. And it's almost kind of like this kind of never-ending tragedy that by the time you get the smarts to know, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's, you've already made all the mistakes you're going to make. And that's, that's it. It's like Ellen Burstyn talking to Sybil Shepard or Ben, Ben Johnson talking to Timothy Bottoms. It's like none of them are smart enough to ever really totally understand what the adults are saying. And again, it's like, again, like, and, and it's, it's interesting to how, cause it, it's interesting too, because then I think it's, it's, it's why you have this setup with say, cause I think Timothy Bottoms kind of falls into this as well. Like, I don't think it's ever surprising that Timothy Bottoms wasn't like a huge star after this. Mm. Cause I do think, I think he's I think he's kind of like Sybil Shepherd in the fact that he's kind of being utilized in a specific way right. and I think it works. But there's a kind of blankness to him that I think is almost necessary for the character. But Sybil Shepherd is playing 
the character in a way where it feels like she's really writing that note. Like somebody said, be a spoiled brat, and she's just going for it. <laughs> and she's not really like thinking beyond, oh, I'm so mad right now. And what is that? You know, right. I, I don't I don't feel like she's ever like thinking beyond that kind of reactionary style of acting. Right. And it works fine, but it's really interesting how you get these great measured, really deep um, kind of like, you know what you're talking about when you say like actors play the notes, like Ellen right. Burstyn, Ben Johnson, Cloris Leachman, they're all doing that. But like the young actors are all kind of pretty much very, very straightforward and immediate in what they're doing. And it almost, I think, works in this intertextual level where it means that because they're all kind of naive and incapable of seeing the future and what the reality of where they're heading is, that it, it, it almost makes sense that they're not as measured or as complex as the adults who are trying to give them this advice. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree. I mean, the one, the one person who obviously just still exudes charm is Jeff Bridges. Um, but I think that's just because he has a natural charm about him that I think cuts through. And even, even he sometimes is kind of a little bit more uh, gray, if you will. But nevertheless, he still has like just this ease about him when he's on camera that he just fits right into whatever it is that he's doing. And you can tell even in this, like, what, what early 20s probably at this point, right? Late teens, early 20s. You can tell, like, uh, okay, so, this guy's got something. So he was born 1949, so he would have been... 22? Yeah, he would have been, like, 21, 22, 20, yeah, 21, 22 at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Damn, is he that old? No, Jeff. You got to yeah, stay with us forever. Yeah, it's just, like... Also, like, I find it really funny that Jeff Bridges has basically spent so much of his career, like, playing, like, well, because he's, he's basically played Texans and now that's moved into, like, grizzled Texans. <laughs> but it's like, but at the same time, he's, like, from California. He's not that at all. I know. And it's like, and apparently, like, the Coen uh, brothers have always said that, like, basically, like, the dude is essentially kind of what Jeff Bridges is like in real life. <laughs> Is that like like Jeff these ba Jeff Bridges is basically wearing his own clothes during that <laughs> in that movie, um, but like and I think there is so I, I think there's definitely an element of kind of like Californian hippie and Jeff Bridges, but there's something that's so weird about the fact that he just keeps playing these these kind of Texans. Yeah, and he does it great too, man. He's great. I will, and of course the funny thing is you know what um, you know what Timothy Bottoms went on to do what become a uh do a lot of george w bush imp impressions he was the um because he was uh the lead in that show that's my bush which was created by the south park guys okay but he's also in this really weird movie that kind of took place you know in that like that like year or so after like pre-iraq war post 9-11 where like everyone was trying to be like super positive about like the Bush administration be like, you know what they you know that we, we need to support the president, all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. There was like this weird made for TV movie and I can't remember what it's called, but it's essentially like about like, but it's like this really like loving portrait of like George W. Bush and Dick Cheney trying to like deal 
with um, deal deal with uh, the the tragedy and kind of like <laughs> literally has like things like 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 um, George W. Bush saying to Dick Cheney like this is going to be a hard time, Dick, but you know you're my conciliary. You know we need to work together. It's like it's 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 like this really like really strange movie. But you could literally put like kind of like some kind of weird music underneath it and make it look like it's this kind of like uh, love story between <laughs> George W. Bush uh, and Dick Cheney. That's great, and he stars in it. It's like seriously, I can't remember what it's called. I might actually look it up to see if I can find what it's called. But it is worth seeking out for the sheer fact it is one of the strangest things somebody made, and it can only have existed in that weird time period, but pre post nine eleven pre-Iraq war. That's so funny. See, I think of him as the dad from uh, Girl Next Door. Isn't he the dad in the oh, Girl yeah. Next Door? Oh, yeah. I forgot he's that. He's also, <laughs> isn't he in, isn't he like the dad in Land of the Lost as well? Oh, uh, he might be. Like yeah, the it, remake of Land of the Lost, yeah, not the yeah. original Land of the Lost. Well, see, here's the thing that's so interesting. This is strange that we're talking about him this way because... He's the he's the protagonist of the film, yeah. really. But yet, of the teens that went on to have careers, I think he went on to have the less, let's say, stellar career. I mean, he's always worked, he's always made money, but it's the less stellar of the three. It's called DC Nine Eleven Time of Crisis. Jeez, it sounds terrible. Seek it out. It is an experience. I will. I will hey, say man, there, there. Life is too short for bad movies. <laughs> <laughs> Not for me, man. I, I know. You're I, game I, I for find that, that shit, shit fascinating. Oh, man. So when I said that I was going to do this movie, you were like, oh, my God, I love this movie. And we chatted a little bit on social media about how you're like, you're like, dude, I'm, I got a dad from West Texas. This was just kind of the film that I, type of film that I was raised on. What is it? What is oh, my, it about? My dad. Did he love this? My movie? dad loved this film because okay. this film was I mean, because this film also it just has so many details of like things that I recognize culturally from Texas. Like, even, like, the bit where they're, like, at graduation and they're singing Texas are Texas. <laughs> right, that was like, right, right. That was, like, a song my dad taught me when I was a kid. Right. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. But it's... So it's, it's one of those things that... I mean, my dad grew up in Lubbock, which is a fairly big town. Okay. But certainly a lot of this kind of, like... Because, like, West Texas is this kind of flat landscape of a lot of these kind of, like, shitty small towns. And especially kind of, like, with the oil business, there were a lot of these little towns that sort of, like, um, you know, essentially popped up to kind of service kind of oil fields and stuff like that. And they don't really have anything. They have, like, like maybe, like, one diner and like a post office and like you know pool hall and that's kind of that's kind of it and there's like a bunch of just diffuse houses like wrapped around mm. it and it's like it's amazing when you go out into the middle of America and you just find these places where you're like who the fuck lives here and that yeah. is kind of what the last picture show is it is about a town that is essentially slowly dying because Nobody's going to fucking live there anymore. There's no future to this place. It is kind mm -hmm. of like it, it, it is. And it's it's like um, I am a big fan of the TV show and also the movie Friday Night Lights because that's almost a kind of 
modern-ish kind of spin on the last picture show. But again, it's like all of these towns, they get very wrapped up in their local high school teams, all of these guys. And, and for everybody there, their lives kind of peak at high school. Mm. And then after that, there's just this long nothingness with nothing really to do and nothing to preoccupy their time. And it's like there's this kind of slow dawning reality that his adolescence has gone. So it's, it's even things like, because it's so such an episodic movie, you have like the whole thing too with um, uh, fuck, what's his name? Bobby Joe, Bob, Bobby something, the the preacher's kid who like takes who the little girl the for girl a or ride. doesn't actually molest her, but almost molests her. Yeah, and that's it. Like a lot of these towns, like there'd be a lot of people who will probably die off in strange ways and like there'll be some accidents there'll be some suicides you know they'll you know some people will go to jail it's like there there's there's not a lot to this world like you know all the optimism all the um possibilities of adolescence dies and then you're just left with this decay Mm. and 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 lack of opportunity because i mean what what are they going to do they're going to go work on the oil rig and probably quite possibly end up um horribly injured or they'll join the army and go to Korea. Um, and then at the same time, you then have those occasional people who they manage to make some money through an oil well or something like that. And they don't want their kids to stay in this town. They want to send them somewhere else. That's why Ellen Burstyn, she married a rich guy and she wants her daughter to go somewhere else. She doesn't want her to stay in this town because this town is a piece of shit and she can see it and she can see it. Hmm. Well, he wasn't rich when she married him. Right, because remember, there's that bit with yeah, Silver yeah, Shepherd. But, yeah, but she's she scared to him con- into getting rich. She's what? She scared him into getting rich, Austin. That's right. That's right. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. So you know how I said earlier when we were talking about Sorcerer, and I said I wish that the film, it just seemed like it was missing a sort of overarching connection. Um, whereas this film, I was thinking about this as I watched it. It isn't trying to make any sort of larger statements about the human condition or about the world or about love, at least not at first. Like, yeah, there are some some bits about the naivete of youth and um, what happens when you're in an oppor- when you're when you're in a situation with lack of hope or lack of opportunity. What does that do to the human spirit, and and how does that affect social relations and things? But, but really, this is just a kind of small story about people in a town, and it's a sort of micro story. And I think sometimes the most powerful micro stories, or I'm sorry, I should say the most powerful, uh, large scale macro themes come out of these like small-scale micro-investigations of towns with little things and people and the quirks and the uniquenesses of a particular region. And for some reason, that seems to, to be part of the reason why this film was so successful to me uh, in, 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 in seeing it, is that it isn't trying too much to aim for the big, but in its microscopic exploration of the immediate and the local, it then opens up to some of the more amazing large themes that we've been talking about so far. Well, I suppose the interesting thing with it too is that I actually think it's essentially, I I think that these two movies are about as polar opposite as you can get because if you think about Sorcerer, Sorcerer is a film that's entirely motivated by action and the immediate. 
Um, and it's like character, motivation, relationship, all of that goes out the window, and it's about the right. visceral experience of it. Whereas that picture show, almost by its very nature, is not about forward momentum. It is about mm. a slow, dripping inevitability while you sit with these characters in terms of their complex inter um, their their complex relationships with each other and how they relate to the wider themes of um of uh adolescence and um uh aging growing up all that you know all, all of these kind of like timeless ideas but that's i was actually i was i was thinking about this because i was I was also trying to think about, because this film is so themed around the idea of adolescence and growing up. Mm-hmm. How universal do you feel some of these themes still are? Like, okay, so we're looking at a film that's set in 1951. It's made in 1971. Um, so how relatable did you feel to the experience of these adolescent characters in terms of their their growing up and their experiences. Oh, I mean, it's not it's not my experience at all. It's not my world. It's not um, anything that I am firsthand accustomed to. But it's the sort of thing that you that you spend a lot of time reading about, and that that people like myself from a wealthy suburb suburb of Los Angeles think about in terms of like novelty like oh there are these quaint little towns where nothing ever happens but we look on those towns very disparagingly right like the towns where people just die you know like nothing happens and you drive through them on your way to Las Vegas or you drive through them on your way to go skiing in the mountains or something like that right and you're like Jesus Christ who the fuck lives here and and we did we would look down on them disparagingly so my my connection with the this world is is very sort of as an outsider. Well, it's interesting, too, because I, I was kind of thinking, okay, if we think of the 1950s as this time of kind of uh, this, this growth of prosperity in America and this time of the kind of uh, idealization of the sort of leave it to beaver, white picket fence, nuclear American family, this film being set in 1951 is almost the antithesis of that in the sense right. that it's it's puncturing the idea of this idyllic small town America like what we think of as like the Frank Capra idea of America and kind of you know saying no it is a small place with small minded people who have you know and and the the you know people who have Hopes and dreams, those are fruitless and will ultimately uh, result in nothing. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like this is... And they can't even keep the picture show going. And they can't even keep the picture show going. I mean, this is a very minority... A, a minority experience in the United States. You know, the majority of people do live in urban environments. The majority of people do not live in these types of places, but for some reason, and I actually just read a really lovely article about this written by Rebecca Solnit, um, about the idea that somehow in the American mythos, we seem to think that, like, small-town Americans like this are the real Americans, right? Like, this is what, this is what real Americans are like. Y'all elites in New York and Los Angeles, you guys aren't real Americans. Like, you gotta go into the, the, the inner parts of America and go into these small towns and you get to the salt of the earth type of people. And there's well, something so, interesting. Know, I, I, 
Yeah. Uh, well, I it's think, just it's, it's a non-romantic a view of those uh, of that type of culture. But I think I think, and we can go back a little bit to what we talked about uh, last week with Roseanne. But I think there is a, a concept of the the flyover states and the idea that uh, our entertainment, our stories, are very based around these 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 coastal settings, um, and that there is this kind of broad um, this 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 broad lack of stories from these actual kind of very mundane small places in America. Um, or so I think, when they, I think when they do have the stories, they're like totally romanticized, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, certainly. Um, and I think, and I think that's, that's the interesting thing. I mean, the reason that my father really gravitated towards, and this is, this is, you know, my father is coming from, uh, a place where, you know, he's, he's coming from uh, a Texas, uh, a Texas town, which is, again, it's, Lubbock, I think, is like the sixth biggest city in Texas. It's not like it's not a small place. Right. Um, and certainly he grew up with this idealization of the West. You know, his, his, his hero was John Wayne, you know. So, you know, he is someone who feeds into the idea of the, 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 the romanticized John Ford, um, uh, Howard Hawks, uh, legends of the West. But something about this movie really grabbed him because it felt real and it felt authentic. Mm. And I think that's, I think, I think that's what's really, and I, and I actually think the other thing that's really interesting about this film is I think this film works so perfectly because it's black and white Mm -hmm. because, because it's, it's also hearkening back to the time period it's set in because it feels right that this film is shot. It almost feels like it was shot in the style of the 50s too like in terms of the camera movements and there's nothing overly contemporary like it seems like even the editing sometimes i'm kind of like okay so it almost seems to kind of be a little bit more antiquated i i wouldn't say i don't think it's got a classical style i think it's got a i do genuinely think it's got a style that to me very much echoes um fellini and pasolini and a lot of that maybe that's what it is okay yeah um but i will say that the thing that I think is really fascinating is when I was a child, I thought this was a film that was set in 19... I thought this was a film that was made in 1951 mm. um, because I associated black and white films with uh, older, Old. old yeah. with an older time period. And my brother, I took my brother... They re-released it in um, cinemas, uh, I think, about 10 years ago um, with uh, the Bogdanovich director's cut. Um, and I took my brother to it and he thought it was a film that was made in 1951. Hmm. And I think that adds something to the authenticity of a time period. It doesn't feel like a nostalgic film. No, not it's at not all. It's not a film that's yeah. commenting, that's, that's looking back lovingly at a time period. It is a film that is simply representing a time period. Hmm. But I suppose, I suppose there's, there's one of the things that I'm, one of the reasons that I asked the question earlier is because I wonder if there's some timeless concepts within adolescence and some broad concepts. So, I mean, this probably made me sound awful, but the idea of dating like a girl that you're not really that into because (laughs) you just want to get some, right. You know, it's like, um, or being in sort of like having this infatuation with a girl who is in no way, you know, right for you or anything that, you know, it's, it's like that you build up and, you know, these are like kind of like timeless. Well, and the idea of just like going with someone as they called it and then just going with somebody else and it would just like switch on a dime. Yeah. You know, 
Like, yeah, I'm, I'm going with this person now, or I want to be with this person now, but oh, that person went off and married this person, so I got to go with this person. And it was just like this strange, as an adolescent, there is this, this pressure to think that you can only come to know yourself uh, through these dating experiences. And the idea that sex is like this big thing, it's this big mystical thing, right? And, you know, when Sybil Shepherd and Dwayne are. Uh, trying to have sex and it's a big deal because they know that everybody else out is outside watching so they need to perform like it was either great or mm. it was terrible or whatever it is that the performance is and for them it was obviously it had to make it so that it was great right like the friends come in and ask Sybil Shepherd how was it and she's yeah. like I can't even describe it like there's this strange and it goes back to this naivete but that I was talking about earlier, this this universal thing that is captured in the particularities of the story that I think is done so but, well. But it's also like things like that whole well, because here's here's like the thing too that I remember thinking as well. It's like when I watched it and like and I'm looking at like nineteen, it's set in 1951, and I'm like that whole thing where they have like the naked pool party, and I remember just right. kind of thinking Ooh. like. But no, no, no. But I, I remember kind of thinking, no, I'm like, like, ooh, so like, risky and transgressive. Yeah, but I remember thinking, like, they did that back in 1951. Because, again, like, my idea of the 50s is colored by this idea of uh, the sort of popular culture of it. So you kind of think, like, the 50s were, like, leave it to beaver, where, like, you you took your best. It's like Archie comics. You take your girl out for a for a soda and you, you, you put a pin on her and all of that sort of thing. Like, the idea that people were, like, having naked, like, pool parties in the 50s seemed, like, really shy, really surprising well, that, to that, me. That actually you know? is why I think that scene and, and why this film actually is so transgressive in a way is that it shatters that image that we have of that time period where everything was kind of morally upstanding and everyone was Christian and everyone was behaving uh, according to a certain code. And I love that Ellen Burstyn's mom is sort of like the first, the first kind of puncturing of that image uh, and, and I think in a in a real profound sense because she's the adult who's like oh stop it with all this like you got to wait till you're have till you're married to have sex and god's going to be angry with you get the fuck over it that shit like the god is dead sort of mentality ellen burston is like the god is dead sort of nietzschean character but, right and it is it is interesting cuz you know it's like that thing of like when you lose your virginity you suddenly kind of have that thing of like Oh, that wasn't like I don't feel like a different person now. Right. I don't feel like, and right. it's like again because these things are like so built up in your yeah. to to be this big deal, and then it's like when you actually sort of uh, when when you see the reality of it, you're suddenly like, oh, okay, this is just this is this is this is not what I had in my brain. Is this yeah. sort of like crazy transgressive experience yeah, there's nothing special about sex in in an absolute sense like yeah there's connection and things like that that you can have but we build it up like it is this transcendent experience that you go from being it's like before sex and after sex you know and like you have somehow switched in your psyche and it's like do you feel any different i remember people asking as teenagers like but that's but do that's you why feel I any different it's... like no i don't I, I don't actually but you would lie and you'd be like yeah man <laughs> But that's why it's interesting, too, that you have the whole thing with the guy who's kind of like, are you a virgin? And she goes, no. And then he goes like, you know, come back when when you're not a virgin. Oh, no, she says, yes, yes, I am a virgin. He doesn't. Yeah, yeah, she says, I'm, yeah. I am a virgin. He goes like and he goes like, come back when you're not a virgin anymore. And it's because it's like he doesn't want that. 
responsibility of dealing with that. He kind of just wants to. He just. He just. He just wants to bang. Right. Right. Yeah, which again is interesting that you notice it because you wouldn't think that in that time period that people were just down for the bang. You would have think that that would have been like post-sexual revolution, right? When it's interesting too how you kind of like you also realize that one of the things Sybil Shepherd's character sort of realizes too is again like it's like that thing of how really Dwayne is just a holdover because he's like you know how like because Sybil Shepherd is so in this movie is so kind of like that girl who was the prettiest girl in her town, but as soon as she leaves her town, suddenly feels completely out to sea and really kind of like, um, you know, kind of, of, you know, kind of like suddenly is, uh, you know, kind of like suddenly so downgraded. It's like, it's like, you know, that whole, um, the whole sort of stereotype of the, of the, everyone who's like the most talented actor in their small town theater. And then they come to LA and there's their one in a million. And like Sybil Shepard, she doesn't care anymore that Dwayne likes her because Dwayne's just like, the best looking guy or the coolest guy in some shithole. So who the fuck cares? Like right. she, she wants, she wants to be down with the cool kids in Wichita Falls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which of course is that funny, of course, cause the coolest kids in Wichita Falls are like, you know, they're not the coolest kids in Dallas. Right. And they're not the coolest kids in New York or LA. So yeah. But it's, it's like, I suppose like the thing with the last picture show, is it's just that that film that you just kind of like again you almost like feel like you would it would be great to just be able to sit and just have like a running commentary the whole time where you can just pause it and chat about it you can just mm. be like okay so we've watched that scene pause let's talk about it like you know and it's it's because there's there's so much in terms of the characterization it's again it's like like you know we could sit here and talk for 10 minutes just about Cloris Leachman's character. You know, we could right. sit for 10 minutes and talk about, I mean, fuck, we could sit for 10 minutes to talk about the woman who runs the diner. It's like right. everything is just filled with so much detail. Yeah. Um, but I mean, just, just quickly, I do want to just touch on Peter Bogdanovich. N- okay. Like without looking at his IMDb, name me your next favorite Peter Bogdanovich film. I don't know any of his other movies. Like by name. Exactly. That's, yeah. That, that's the thing is he kind of, he kind of was one of these guys who then took over, like, doing these, um, you know, took over trying to, like, reinvent all of these old Hollywood styles. Like, he famously made this kind of disastrous movie called uh, At Long Lost Love, which where Sybil Shepard and Burt Reynolds star and is a musical. Oh, Jesus. Um, and then uh, he kind of, I mean, his other kind of famous movie is Paper Moon, um, where... Uh, um, where uh oh fuck what's uh which uh what's ryan o'neill's tatum o'neill tatum o'neill became the youngest actress to ever win best actress oh oh. well then Um, you know what it makes me think it makes me think that that was the key element of this movie really peter bogdanovich and his directorial vision or was it the script the 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 sort of timelessness of the stories of adolescence naive adolescence uh you know, kind of transitioning into adulthood. Like, really, what is the successful thing of this film? Maybe it wasn't that Peter Bogdanovich is just, like, a brilliant director so much as this was just a brilliant story. I don't know. I think it's like... And he I managed it well, if, you know? I always kind of wonder if this is a movie where Peter Bogdanovich managed to get out of his own way enough to make it work. Right, it's right. Like, it's like... Yeah. 
Because he's a guy who I feel like when I read about stuff, he, I mean, I suppose a lot of people like Mask. Did you like Mask? He directed Mask. No, I mean, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. It's like, but it's like, I, I just kind of wonder, he's like a guy who makes choices. And he's kind of a guy who's like, he's, he's uh, an essayist. Like that was one of his background points. He was a film essayist. And so he was a big mm. um, fan of like Godard and, Kaya de Cinema and like he took a lot of inspiration from that and so like he's clearly a guy who lives and breathes film he's kind of a film historian as well so there's an element to which you know he's clearly he's very literate film I just don't kind of know if I've ever really found much that's interesting about his work I will say too he also directed a sequel to the last picture show in 1990 called Texasville which almost nobody knows which everyone's already forgotten exists did you see it no, I've never brought myself to watch it. I just, I don't like the idea of, of it. I don't want to know what these characters happen to these characters 20 or 30 years later. I, I just don't, I, I don't care. And it's like, and the cover has like Jeff Bridges and Sybil Shepard in this kind of like, they're like touching foreheads and smiling at each other. And it just like everything about it looks wrong. It just doesn't look like what the, like, like a sequel to the last picture show should look like. It just feels wrong to me. Cause to me, I feel like, I feel like Jeff Bridges goes off to Korea and dies. Yes. And, uh, a Timothy bottom goes, go, you know, gets injured horribly on an oil rig and just ends up being like one of those sad guys who just sits in the diner all the time. Uh, that's, I, that's, I, he, like he that's turns it. into that's Sam. That's the reality of that film to me. I think he turns into Sam. Really? You think he turns into Sam? Yeah, he sits in this town. I suppose. And, and he becomes kind of the Sam. He becomes the guy that never leaves, but he runs that pool hall. He takes. Uh, he's obviously still running the pool hall. Uh, he just kind of runs the pool hall. He just sits there. He doesn't do anything. And then maybe he one day is sitting at a watering hole, uh, nostalgically talking about these amazing times that he had when he was younger or something like that. I don't know. Maybe you're just more uh, more of an optimist than me. But I suppose like that's the thing is to me like these films, both Sorcerer and um, Last Picture Show, they come out of a time period where essentially America has is re- very much reevaluating the idea of the white picket fence and the idealistic ideas that came. I mean, where we're in Vietnam, where you know, with um, with. Um, uh, with with sorcerer or post Watergate, this is not an optimistic America that we're living in. Mm. So the idea of Texasville being made in 1990, after you know the sort of uh, a decade of 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 uh, optimistic you know images of Reagan, you know riding horses and chopping wood, I'm just like I'm really I, it just feels it just feels wrong to me. See now that we talk we're talking about this, I kind of feel like we have to watch it. I feel like we have to just as like. An experiment. I think we have to see it. You know what? Fuck it. I'm going to make it my next choice. What? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, um, Austin, I... So it is time for us to do our our pleas, our quick pleas as to why our film is the better film. So uh, I am going to make you go first because why the fuck not? So are you ready? Uh, I'm ready. Don't even worry about your okay, timer. Cool. You don't even have to worry about your timer. I'm I'm literally going to be 10 seconds. All right, go for it. All right, so here's my plea. Uh, Sorcerer is a good movie. It's a very good movie. We enjoyed the film. But I'm going to read you a quote. And this is a quote. It says, Masterpiece is, I think, the only true way to describe it. Keir Seawert about The Last Picture Show. I'm going to read that one more time. Masterpiece is I think the only true way to describe it. Quote, Q. 
Kier Seward. That is why The Last Picture Show is better, because we actually both agree that it's a better film. But he has to defend Sorcerer, because that's the rules of the game. But just keep that in mind. <laughs> oh, fuck it, you got me there. You do have me there. Uh, all right, all right, okay, so... So, as I said, the thing about Sorcerer is it is a pure cinematic experience. And I'll say that, again, as much as I can say, I I would not necessarily suggest Sorcerer as a masterpiece, but I will say it is quintessentially everything that cinema should be. A visceral, engaging, and purely cinematic, you know, piece of art. And... Also, it is one of it is a fascinating mess of historical proportions because and let's let's just all think about the wonderful world we could have lived in if summer cinema was less like Star Wars and more like Sorcerer. Wouldn't that be a wonderful world? Yeah, so I, that, 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 that was good. It would be a wonderful mm-hmm. world. It would be a wonderful world. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so. All right. So. That is the Versus series done. Um, I will be sending off the audio uh, please to our um, our unbiased jury of uh, five people who will be grading them. Who we will be? It'll be like it'll be like a boxing match where the rounds will be graded, and then we will you know we we will have ra- we will win rounds, and then it'll be based on who gets the most out of the three rounds. Cool. So Austin, though, after having lost. Your previous, uh, your, your your previous chance to like pick a film, your it's finally back to you. So, what are you gonna, what are you gonna subject us to next week? I'm gonna exact some revenge on you, Kier. We're going to watch Bellatar's Turin Horse. How fucking long is that? It's not that long. It's not like Satan Tango, which is like seven plus hours. It's about like two and a half, three hours. Why, why, why are you exacting revenge on me again? What did I do to you? Because you got you stole one of my choices from me. <laughs> Steal one of your choices? You lost the choice. It doesn't matter. In my world, you stole one. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is, a, this is a film that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. Because I do enjoy slow cinema. And I do enjoy the sort of... Um, there is something beautiful, I think, that this film is trying to get at. And uh, and I don't think you're going to love this film across the board, but I do think you'll appreciate it in a lot of ways. And so I'm excited to kind of chat with you about it. But yeah, the terrain. Now I wish we were watching Texasville. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, tune in next week because, you know, I'll probably also be talking about Avengers uh, Infinity War, which is a which is could you could you get more polar opposite than that uh, review for Avengers yep. Infinity War and uh, and Bellatar's Turin Horse. All right. You know what the Turin Look Horse forward. is about? Do you know it's it's, it's about uh, is it about a Turin Horse? So it's the idea that when Nietzsche supposedly went mad at the end of his life. There's an anecdote that he went crazy because, you know, Nietzsche had been talking about how God is dead, God is dead, and he was this, like, untimely philosopher. So eventually he – we think that he may have contracted syphilis and gone mad. And so uh, the the story is is that he saw this horse that was a beast of burden, and he broke down and he cried and he hugged the horse out of empathy because he viewed himself as a beast of burden. And this horse is a beast of burden. So he connected with this horse in this animalistic thing, and it happened at Turin. So the Turin horse is based on that. <laughs>
So what you're saying is this is a better named film than Sorcerer. <laughs> it's definitely a better name. Yes. Okay, so in the meantime, uh, please uh, like and subscribe to us on iTunes if you haven't already. Uh, if you want to check out my work, go to kirsiewit.com. Uh, you can check out more about the podcast on idigthismovie.com. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at uh, Breaking Point Flicks. Uh, Austin? Yep, hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. That's it. That's all Austin, I got. Austin, uh, Austin loves to chat shit on Twitter. He does. He does. Sometimes, sometimes on Facebook, I just like to read the comments. Yep, sometimes on Facebook, but uh, mostly on Twitter. And usually the stuff that's on Facebook is from Twitter. So hit me up, Austin underscore Hayden. Okay, see you next week for some fucking movie about a fucking horse. Turin horse. It's not really about that, but that's okay. We'll get into it. Is there a horse in the movie? There's a horse in the movie. Okay, well, at least there's a horse in the movie. Later, people.